Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. It's also important to note that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and theirs alone. Not everyone will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say. So please try and keep that in mind. Today's podcast is my guest's version of events, and there'll always be others who see it differently. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this my own podcast. I still pinch myself, but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. I think we can be very gratuitous when we, you know, you read some true crime books and it really is about the offender and it is about the girls as victims. But I think we need to move away from that narrative and tell of the loss. Vicky Petratus is a crime writer a true crime podcaster, and she's written 16 books, including her bestseller, The Frankston Murders. Vicky's a popular speaker. She runs workshops for students of all ages, and her author presentation's becoming a must-attend if you're a true crime podcast enthusiast. Uh, She's currently working on her PhD in creative writing and has just finished her first novel, which examines the very topical subjects of sexual assault and domestic violence and the way that the law seems to protect offenders rather than victims. In 2020, she released two books, Cops, Drugs, Lawyer X and Me, Me being Paul Dale, and Police Stories. She's recorded her first true crime podcast series with Case File. I love Case File. Uh, 
called The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron, which has been and still is hugely successful. And she's almost finished her second series, Searching for Sarah McDermott, which we will be talking about today. I'm pretty sure Vicky and I will have differing opinions on ex-detective Paul Dale, but her research and knowledge of the Sarah McDermott case can't be underestimated. I'll let her give us an insight into what she's uncovered with 20 years of research and investigation, along with any further ideas she has about what happened to poor Sarah. Anyway, welcome, Vicky, and thank you for your time. Thank you, Thea. Thanks so much for having me, Narelle. I'm so pleased to be here and to talk to you. Yes, likewise. The Mutual of Admiration Society here. (laughs) (laughs) It is, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, So, Vic, I thought I'll get this out of the way first. I've met Paul Dale once or maybe twice in my career, and I've absolutely no knowledge of anything to do with Lawyer X and Paul Dale. But I just can't pretend to be anything but embarrassed and, frankly, suspicious of the amount of serious crimes that his name keeps coming up in as a a suspect or a person of interest. All I know is what I've read. But an old boss of mine who used to work in the squad of many names, including internal investigations department, used to say that the same names keep coming up time and time again. Tell me your thoughts about Paul Dale. I'm so glad that you started with this, Narelle, because uh, I'd never heard of Paul Dale when when he approached me and said, look, could you help me with my story? And I had to Google him and I, I sort of thought, oh, my God, who who is this guy? And, and certainly I wasn't a Herald Sun reader, so I missed, you know, the many, many, many times that he's, you know, uh, was on the front page of the Herald Sun. And so I Googled him and I thought, whoa, what has this guy done? Mm -hmm. And so when I first met him, he came to my house and he had pretty much a ute full of documents. And what he did was he sort of, you know, brought them all into my house and he just said, we'll talk, have a look at all these and you decide. And so he didn't, I guess what I liked about that approach was he didn't try and control the narrative. He just said, here's all the documents. And so I spent months just reading through um, file after file and their statements from everybody. And I just think from someone who went from knowing nothing about it, I was really disturbed right from the start about the process. And this is what attracted me to the story. And I think as an investigator and an investigative um, writer, I think that we want to know that the process is fair. And so when I started to read about, um, you know, Terry and Dave get caught robbing the drug house and, uh, and then Terry is offered complete immunity if he can name another offender and, uh, you know, he says, Paul did it. And then it just, it just the, the f- I really am into fairness and justice. And I think right from the start, um, when you get somebody offered a life sentence or no sentence in return for a name, then, you know, just as an, an outsider, you have to go, oh, well, 
what sort of credibility to does Terry Hodson have if he's bargaining with stakes that high? And so I was just a little bit disturbed by, oh, you know, can you trust someone who who is a known informer of everyone? And he's certainly informed not only just because he really liked informing, but he informed to get rid of rivals and he informed, you know, on people that he didn't like. And and so so that was kind of the first thing to me that I thought, oh, that process doesn't seem fair. And then the more I looked into it, the more I I felt like it, it seemed to me that 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 people zeroed in on him very quickly. And and I know, like you, Narelle, other cops have said to me his name crops up all the time. And I always kind of say, well, what, what do you? What is it that you think he did? And that's when people, and not just with police, but that's when people sort of start to go, I, I'm not sure what he did. <laughs> I know what he's been accused of. And so the question, I suppose, has to be asked. And then, of course, the the incentives for people like Carl Williams. Uh, Carl Williams is offered. I, I say a million dollars in cash and prizes, um, or it was nearly two million dollars in order to get a statement against Paul. And the fact that when Carl Williams dies, the case fails. And so it's like, is that all you had? Did you just have Carl? Because if this evidence had been tested in court, uh, you know, Betty King, we all know when she sends Carl Williams, she said, you know, you are. Um, a huge liar and, and nothing that you say can be believed. And then you have the police going to him. And I, look, I'm not accusing them of going to him in anything but good faith, but they go to him and they help him construct his statement and they offer him the million-dollar award. They gave, they paid off his dad's $750,000 tax bill um, and his kid was in private school. And you just start to think, is this fair? Someone like Carl Williams, would he concoct something for, and he was after a reduction in sentencing. And then, of course, that's not even getting into the lawyer X. Mm. And I guess that just what I wanted to explore in the book, Narelle, was, was the process against him fair? And I think if we have a process like that, that's, that, that none of us could survive. And then you look at him, he's always denied it. Um, but, you know, I spent time with his family and his parents and they were, you know, stand-up members of the community and Yak and Danda, and they just were so bewildered by what happened to him. And so the book, from my point of view, was really about, hey, we need to have this process under scrutiny because if you get someone, you have to get them fair and square. You cannot get them by paying witnesses. And, of course, the, I think the Royal Commission is echoing this, that you can't um, interfere with the process, no matter what your noble cause might be. You can't do that to someone. And so I guess what his side of the story was, a lot had been written about him and he'd never said a word. And he got to the point where one journalist had written about how he had been taking a power nap at traffic lights and let an armed robbery suspect uh, escape while he was having this power nap when he was in the armed robbery squad. 
And Paul, when he read that, he went to his lawyer, he sort of stormed in and he goes, you know what, I was never in the armed robbery squad. When this happened, I was a 19-year-old uniformed cop, you know, uh, burning shoe leather on the beat. And um, this is wrong. And his lawyer said, you know what, Paul, you can only sue for defamation when you can prove that they've destroyed your character or reputation. He goes, your reputation so far down the toilet. Mm, mm. That, you know, so he, I just felt it was really interesting to portray that other side of the coin. What would it be like for someone if you hadn't done these things and if your name was bandied around because it was mentioned first by Terry Hodson to bargain his way out of a, a literally a life sentence. That's I had the transcripts of the recordings when the detectives are saying, oh, Terry, you're stuffed. You'll never get out. This will be a life sentence. This is trafficable quantities of drugs. And, um, oh, well, you know, unless you can give us a name. And then he goes, oh, Paul Dale or a three, the three-striper. And so... I don't know. I just think my sense of justice was, look, this needs to be looked into. And the fact that he didn't want to control the narrative, he just gave me all the documentation. He goes, you tell me if you think this is fair. And it certainly didn't seem fair to me. So this is, I don't know, for me it was never about, uh, you know, guilty or innocent. It was just about, well, hold on a minute, the process that was going on here uh, seems really dodgy. And, um, yeah, does that make sense? Uh, Very much so. Yeah, it does. Um, But do you also think that because you've spent so much time uh, with Paul, do you think that maybe you could be a little bit um, biased with, you know, what's that? There's a syndrome when you spend a lot of time with somebody (laughs) that you actually, um, not a but. Yeah, like Stockholm you, Syndrome. Yeah, um, yeah do you, do yeah. you think, like I, I'm not saying that his um, uh, his parents aren't lovely people, his family yeah, aren't yeah. lovely, like there's no issue there. I, I mean I don't know them. But yeah, I'm just yeah. wondering because you've spent so much time with him, has that um, affected your writing, I suppose? I think for starters, I didn't spend a lot of time with him. So um, he was in, he lives in Wangaratta and I'm in Melbourne. And so the, basically the book was written from documentation. Okay. And so then, you know, I created the story. So this wasn't just his word. This was uh, looking at Terry's statement. It was looking at the statement of the Hodson kids. It was looking at the detective statement. So it was, it, it was looking at everybody's statement. One thing that I did uh, note, though, was that people spoke very highly of him before Terry mentioned his name. And so even the people that worked with him uh, were, very, you know, very much he's a great boss. They they didn't speak highly of Dave Mitchell. Uh, they thought that he was a, a bit of a loner and that he had behaved oddly and even Paul said that. But uh, you know, that Paul was a really good boss and he was really keen. And so this was kind of the narrative about him before Terry Hodson says it was the three-striper. And uh, he had been decorated uh, with his work on the Silk Miller case. And um, and then, of course, the, the narrative changed. But um, yeah. so what I how I would do it is that, you know, I would create the narrative from everybody's stuff. 
commitment. And then I would meet with him. We probably met maybe half a dozen times. Um, and, you know, Paul and I, we're not friends. We, we don't, uh, you know, we're not going to ring each other up and go to the footy together or whatever people do that, um, so, but, but, you know, I, I listen to his story and I think everyone has the right to give their side of it. And I think when, when he said to me, when he was re- telling me that story about being in, uh, you know, going to the lawyer's office and, and the lawyer goes, you know, mate, there's nothing you can do. Your reputation's in the gutter. And he looked at me and he goes, so what do you do? What, what, what voice do I have? And I said, well, this is the voice that you have, Paul. You get to tell your side of the story. And I think that's what I felt was that he didn't have a voice and I guess that's what I do. I give people in all of my books, people that don't have a public voice, I give them the right to tell their story. And I think his account is important in the narrative of Lawyer X. And you're right, Vicky. I think everyone um, has uh, should have the opportunity to tell their side of the story. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's just such a divisive, the whole thing about Lawyer X. Oh, and yeah. Paul, you know, yeah. it just goes on and on. And it is very divisive, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose, could we talk a little bit about the Frankston murders? Um, could you give the listeners a bit of a pricey of the crimes and the perpetrator, uh, Paul Denyer, as he was known then? And then I believe years later he wanted, yeah. he wanted to be referred to as Paula. And from numerous sources, you now believe he's reverted to wishing to be known as Paul again. So I suppose from now on we just refer to him as Paul. Are you happy with that? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I, when uh, I was of the um, belief that Paula was female identifying, I was happy to say Paula. And I've, yep. I've heard from several sources that is no longer the case. So I'll revert back to Paul because I know uh, that this is something that tr- is triggering for a lot of people. And I'm the first person, as, as I'm sure you are, Narell, uh, to be very respectful of that. But uh, he's now Paul. Yes. Uh, again, so... Um, yeah, the Frankston murders. I was living in the area in uh, 1993, and uh, so I was living in Seaford, and I was working on my second book. So I'd written the Philip Island murder, and I was working on my second book where, um, and this is hard to believe now, Narelle, but in back in the day when I was interviewing police, and I would say to them, you know, I was interviewing them about Philip Island, and and then they're going, oh, if this book doesn't work out, we've got heaps of stories come back. And, you know, write a book about our stories. So that's exactly what I did. As soon as Philip Island was finished, I kind of went back to these guys and said, hey, give me some stories. And so part of what I was doing was I was doing ride-alongs, which I I don't think you can do that now, but uh, I would literally kind of rock up at the police station and they'd put me in the back. I think I had to sign a document saying, if we kill you, it's not our fault or something (laughs) something like that. It was, you know, done in legalese. And... um, you know, and so, and, and I found myself uh, doing a shift at Frankston uh, when Debbie Frame had been taken, so the early July 1993, 
and I was doing a shift with the community policing squad and it was the day that they had found Debbie's car. So in the paper it was this mother goes missing and she just had a baby and could be postnatal depression. It like how could a, a new mother just vanish off the face of the earth, go up to the street and not come back? And um, so, so it was that day that her car had been found and Debbie was short and her car had been found abandoned uh, with the seat pushed right back. So, and it had a dint in the bonnet that wasn't there when she took it off to, to go off to the milk bar. And so it was kind of, I was on the spot at the community policing squad that had sort of come in on this case as a, a concern for this missing young mum and then all of a sudden it became very serious when her car was found and she hadn't just gone off and something had happened to her. And so then, so that was kind of the beginning of my immediate involvement um, kind of on, on the spot for this. And then I was doing another ride along with the Frankston uniform uh, when Natalie Russell went missing and so I found myself, I was in the back of the police car when they got the call to head straight to uh, Monterey High School, which was at the other end of the bike track where Natalie's body lay. So there I am as a crime writer sitting in the back seat of a police car, staring up, you know, the rain is drizzling down and, and staring up at the police helicopter, which is shining the big night sun down on the crime scene. Of course, you can't go near the crime scene, but... Um, just thinking, I have to write this book. This is this is just crazy to be right in the middle of this. And um, I had gone to all the community meetings as a as a local, and I just thought this one has to be me. And so it was the first time that I stepped really outside my comfort zone because I'm a teacher. I'm not a journalist, and this this all of this was very self taught. And I knew that it wasn't just police that I would have to interview. I would have to go in to the families of all of the victims and I would have to sit with them and I would have to hear their story. And uh, that's that's quite daunting to get in touch with these people. But what I realised was that, um, you know, these people are, they, they have this incredible story uh, of their daughter or their cousin or their, their niece being taken and, Aside from the immediate time afterwards, it's really hard to talk about that. And I realised something profound when I was talking to the victims. It's like if you lose someone, like around about that time I had lost an uncle and he had a stroke and ended up in hospital and he passed away. And when I went back to work after the funeral and, and you know, he's, oh, my uncle had a stroke, that there's a whole lot of me too goes on. Oh, my God, that happened to my nana. That happened to my dad. And there's a whole lot of support that one can get with anything like that. You know, my house was broken into or, um, you know, my sister-in-law has cancer. And then you get this me too. Oh, my God. And you get this sharing of story and you get sympathy. But if you if you go into work and say, oh, my daughter was murdered by a serial killer, there, there's just this dead silence. There's no, oh, yeah, that happened to no one I've ever known. And so uh, in the immediate aftermath, there is very much the community comes together and supports. But further down the track, and, of course, that's when I was coming in, so uh, I had to wait till Denny was captured, which was, 
a day after Natalie, the third victim, was murdered. So just an overview, he had killed in a seven-week period. He had taken Elizabeth Stevens, who was an 18-year-old woman living with her aunt and uncle in Lang Warren. He'd taken her as she got off the bus on a Friday afternoon, a Friday evening. Uh, and then a couple of weeks later, he had tried to abduct Rosa Toth from uh, the Seaford Railway Station. He dragged her into the reserve near the station. She had fought fiercely and got away, and he had simply hopped on the train and caught the train down to Cannanook. He literally got off at Cannanook and went down McCulloch Avenue, which is right across the road from the station, and he had come across Debbie as she got out of her car at the, the, the milk bar in McCulloch uh, Avenue and hid in the back seat. So as soon as she hopped back in the car, he held a fake gun uh, to her side and said, drive, and she smashed into the wall of the milk bar and uh, that was where the dint came from and he oh, okay. made her drive yep. out to Taylor's Road, and uh, which is very remote, and then he killed her there and dumped her body. So she wasn't, and then drove her car back, but she wasn't found for uh, four days. So there was this horrible four-day wait where her partner, Gary, was on the front page of every newspaper holding this newborn baby, baby oh. Jake, and it was yeah. just horrible. Heartbreaking. Mm. Heartbreaking. It was just, mm. I think, the whole of the community. Uh, and then, of course, Natalie uh, was, was at the end of July. So Debbie, I think, was the 8th and then Natalie was the 30th. So, and interestingly, when we had a memorial uh, for the 25th anniversary, um, I had found baby Jake and, of course, he'd just turned 25 and oh. we brought him over to Melbourne. And yeah. at the memorial for Natalie, um, I was going around introducing him to everyone. I'm going, this is baby Jake. And there was a warmth and a, people were just hugging him and he felt for the first time that he was in a place because he didn't grow up in Melbourne, but he was in this place where people knew what he'd been through and just had yeah. a, a basic human a connection to him. him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they did. It was incredible. People yeah. were pushing money into my hand saying, please give this to baby Jake. Aww. And so it was just amazing. But what was really fascinating was that Natalie, one of Natalie's friends had come up to baby Jake and said, she said, oh, Natalie and I had read stories about you in the newspaper and we felt so sorry for you. So it was interesting that, that baby Jake was on Natalie's radar uh, as she became that final victim. And then Daniel was caught the next day and it was a tribute to the police and the amount of police that were in the area that his car was checked twice on the day that Natalie died and that the second time it was checked he had parked outside, uh, sorry, parked opposite the, uh, the the track that Natalie walked down and a postal worker had come along on her bike and she, this is, I think it's partly uh, that he looked dodgy, but the other part was this level of fear that everyone was experiencing and she'd ridden past him and she thought, that guy looks dodgy. And she had, in the days before mobile phones, she'd knocked on the door of a house and said, I need to use your phone to ring the police to report Jeez. a suspicious-looking guy sitting in his car. And so she had rung the police. By the time she came out, he had gone. So he'd walked up the track and she'd also seen Natalie coming. And then, of course, by the time the police got there, 
to check the car, he was killing Natalie. And as he walked out of the bike track covered in her blood, like with her blood on his hands, he saw the police checking his car. So he just put his hands in his pocket and walked home. So it was one of these just devastatingly tragic Mm. moments in time that if, you know, if only, if only it had been 10 minutes earlier or, you know, it was just one of those things. But he was caught the next day and and he confessed. Yeah. You know, I remember I I think most uh, young women and, you know, men as well, but particularly young women around that time, uh, I remember it like it was yesterday, um, and I come from Edithvale. You just said before about Seaford. Uh, I grew up in Edithvale, so yeah. when you come from somewhere where there's a, a crime like that, you take a lot more interest. I mean, because you know all the places people are talking about. But I must admit, and still to this day, I don't know about you, but every time I get into my car of a night time. I always look in the back seat and it's not being overly hypervigilant or it's just something. I always look in the back seat because I always remember that Denya was in the back seat waiting for Deborah Freem. I always remember that. It's amazing. Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah. And that it, that's why um, when people, when I do crime talks and women come up and they'll say, ever since I read your Frankston book, I always check my back seat. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, yeah. and it's like, you're welcome. <laughs> or, it, or it could be, ever since I've read your book, I can't go to sleep with the light off. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, okay, sorry about that. But um, I think that's why, that's one of the reasons why crime is so popular for women is because they read it on a human level to see how people survive this tragedy, but they also read it as a safety guide and they read it like this is how women are targeted, therefore I'm not going to do those things. I'm going to check my back seat. Um, See, I can't. I've got really heavily tinted windows so I can't, I can't see inside my car. That just occurred to me. Now I'm going to be scared. <laughs> oh, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, just an incredible, oh, incredible is the wrong word because when we talk like this, you know, it's it's a trigger for so many people for so many reasons. Yeah. And you've obviously had a lot to do with the families of, of not just the victims of um, the Frankston murders, but uh, Vivian Cameron, like it, all your books. Um, you must. Yeah. C- could you tell us a bit about what it's like? You said it's daunting getting in touch with the family. Can you tell us a bit about dealing with the families of victims? Yeah, I mean it's daunting to 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 do that reaching out. Yeah. But when? But every single time. I've done it with a couple of exceptions, I suppose, but every every time I've reached out, um, I've always done it in a way that it's just like I want to tell her story. Mm-hmm. It was really important to me when I wrote The Frankston Murders that it wasn't just a book about Denya because... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It had to be a book about what he took and you can only know what he took when you know the girls. Yeah. And so I said that to the family. I said, look, I want to show Natalie was not just Natalie 17 on her way home from school and now she's, she's a, you know, always uh, Paul Denyer, killer of Natalie Russell 17, Debbie Friend 22. I didn't want them just to be add-ons after his name. I wanted them to be girls who had a past and who had a life and who had dreams and who had people that loved them. And it was really important to show these girls and, and to show them to the public who they were. And I think we can be very gratuitous when we, um, you know, you read some true crime books and it really is about the offender and it is about, um, you know, the girls as victims. But I think we need to move away from that narrative and tell of the loss. And uh, so I think the family, I think because I'm still in touch with a lot of them today and I think that the families were really grateful that I was able to do that for them. Mm. And then, of course, uh, when I rang Carmel and Brian Russell to say to them, look, I really want to put the book out again for the 25th anniversary, Brian Russell said to me, he goes, oh, thank God you've rung because I was just saying to Carmel the other day, we'll need to do something so people don't forget. Mm. We need to do yeah. something so Denny can stay in jail. We need to keep shining a spotlight on this case. So when I come along and say, Brian and Carmel, you shouldn't have to do that. Will you let me do that for you? And they're really, they're like, Vicky, if you could do that for us, that would be fantastic. So, you know, I was able to um, get in touch with Neil Mitchell and say, look, because Neil has been a huge supporter yes. of the Russells. And it's like, Neil, could they come on and could could we talk about this again? And, of course, he's like, yes, anything to, you know, to help them out and to, to give them the publicity that they need to keep Daniel in jail. That's all they want. 
And because Denya got a life sentence with no minimum in the beginning, and then he appealed and got a 30-year minimum, uh, it sort of puts the onus unfairly, I think, back onto the families to say, this is up to you, this is how they feel, this is up to us to keep him in jail and to make sure people never forget what he did. And the thing was that before I'd written the Frankston book, there was not a lot of true crime books out there. And a couple of years after, people were going, who was that, that Frankston serial killer? Who was that again? I think podcasts and books and articles and, and you know, websites and things bring the attention back and then people would know Denya. But, uh, you know, in the years afterwards, people forgot. You know, they remembered that they had a serial killer, but there was no name recognition. And this is what we always need to do. We always need to keep saying never forget what he did and never forget how dangerous he is. Yeah, yeah. You'd say there about Mr and Mrs Russell that they actually wanted the publicity, but I don't imagine that every, uh, well, I assume not every victim's family uh, would feel like that, like some don't want to remember it and they want to sort of try and uh, f- move on as much as they can and forget it. Have you found that as well? Um, I I don't know. Look, I've always found that, that victims and victims' families have, have usually been really happy to talk. Having said that, I often write from the point of view of police. So I it's not like every story that I've ever written had to be through the eyes of a victim. Um, but I find that when people have the chance to um, tell their story, I think uh, people really people really welcome that. Uh, so I, I don't have a lot of knockbacks, um, but, I, you know, yeah, and normally I, I get a really um, – You know, I have a really good response. And I do something that I know a lot of journalists wouldn't do, but if I interview someone, I always say, I will give you your chapter and you can read it and you can change anything that you want. And they usually don't change anything, but they they feel like they're not going to give me their story and trust me with it and then get a shock when the book comes out. So with the families all along, it was like you read and you make sure that you're happy that I've represented you and your story properly. So I never did the um, you're not going to see this till it, it is released. I always, and I do that with police as well, it's like if I interview you, you get to read and approve of your part of the story. And uh, so I, fe- I think that that has helped people to trust in me and trusting my process because it was never a surprise as to what came out in the end. Yeah, yeah. Have you noticed yourself having written so many crime books and written about some, you know, really um, serious crime and scary stuff, have you noticed yourself becoming more vigilant, for instance, or a little more safety conscious after spending so much time writing and researching? It, it's a good question. I, I, I'm really lucky in that I'm a teacher. And so my whole day, every day is filled up with kids. And it, it, in working in schools, I've worked in a lot of schools and it's a very insulated world. And we're there for the good of the kids and we protect the kids and 
And so I've always had this really nice balance that if by night I had gone out with a patrol car and maybe gone to a fatal accident, the next day I would be back with the kids. And so I was really lucky to always have this really nice balance. What I think I tend to do is I take precautions. So, you know, the unlisted number and and the um, post office box and so people won't ever my, I never have to give out my address and, you know, things like that. But, um, you know, you have security cameras at your house. And back when I was first started, my husband, we had like paid security, would drive past our house a couple of times a night because he was worried. Oh, but I yep. think that um, if I set these things in place, I then don't think about it. So I'm not particularly, I, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't go out much at night and I might go to a restaurant with my girlfriends or, you know, go out with the family. But I just, um, you know, I, I don't live a lifestyle, I think, where I'm in jeopardy. So I, I don't, I, I don't, I'm really busy, so I don't have time to give it a lot of thought. Yeah, it's, um, it's probably a, um, good that you're busy because I just think to yeah. myself, you know, investigating these crimes, they have yeah, an effect on, yeah. well, they did on me. I think they would on most people. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I imagine writing about them would be the same, but it's how you manage that, isn't it? It's how you deal with it and what your uh, the tools you've learned to deal with it all, you know, that fear yeah. or that, um, yeah, I understand. You're, you're very lucky. And do you know, yeah, it's funny, Narelle, because when, when I picture you going to the crime scenes and, and having the experiences that I've heard you talk about many times, what your job was, was your job was to go in and almost step into the abyss. Yes. And step into the horror and be emerged in it. Yes. What my job is as a writer is that I certainly I tackle and I look at the crime scene photos, which is I understand is not as anywhere near like being there in person, but I I have to stare at this and I have to absorb it. But a writer does something that I think is really interesting and the opposite to what you do. So what a writer, what I do as a writer is I'm always subconsciously looking for what is the lesson? What did we learn? What is the upside from this? What is the um, – where is the resilience? I'm constantly talking to people about how do you cope, how do you put this – uh, what has happened to you? How do you turn it around and make it work for you? How do you use it to bring about public awareness? How did what happened to you make you an advocate for others? And there are always counterbalancing the horror. There is always in the writing that I do almost this groundswell of community support that balances it out. So I'm forever looking for not suggesting that any crime has a silver lining whatsoever because it's devastating. But in the retelling, it's like, for example, when I interviewed uh, Carl Denardio, and he's a guy that I will never, ever forget, uh, and, and I hold this guy up as, as someone who I would see as a great hero. Now, he was really severely injured in the Russell Street bombing. Oh, I was wondering so where was I knew the name. Standing. Yeah, wondering where I knew the I'm, name yeah, from. Yep. You know, oh, that's right. So he was literally standing with Angela Taylor at the lights 
she went across the lights. He re- realised that he didn't know how to get to the canteen, you know, through the door closest to the light. So he doubled back. So while when the bomb went off, she um, had the fireball went in her direction and Carl popped the shrapnel side. I didn't know that bombs had two sides, but he explained it and and he was severely injured at 19. And when I met him and wrote a story for the 20th anniversary, he said to me, he said, you know, uh, that bomb taught me so much. Like at 19, I learned who your real friends were, how important family was. I learned how life could, if it could end in an instant, then it also could be Braced fully. So every time an opportunity for travel or an experience came up, he goes, I would jump right in. And so he, so I realized with my writing that so many of the people that I interview, they are shaped and molded by what happened. And even though the what happened was awful, uh, they became stronger and more resilient and. Uh, their life was different as a result. And also I said to Carl, I said, what would you say to Stanley Taylor or Craig Minogue? And he goes, I wouldn't say anything to them. He goes, I don't give them a thought. He goes, because if I think about them, they win. So I'm just sitting with this guy for like four hours going, oh, my God, you're amazing. You are an extraordinary man for what you had, not by what had happened to you, but what you did with it. And so does, does that make sense? Like I, I see these people all the time that I am looking for that moment of, okay, we acknowledge what happens, but what did you do with it? And that's where the magic happens in story. Um, and I'm not saying that everyone that has something bad happen is obliged to, to survive and thrive, but this is the human spirit. And I think what true crime does, what my writing, what I'm constantly subconsciously doing is looking for where's the human spirit that comes out fighting when something bad happens. And it is always there. So I'm not looking into the abyss like um, the Nietzsche quote of the abyss looks back into you. I'm looking at... um, how does the community survive this and what does it teach us? And, and so it's a different, a different focus, I guess, with your job. It sounds very much like you're just in gumboots wading through this horror mm. and it doesn't stop. Mm. You know, you're right, Vicky, because when you just said then that we are, as police people, we are immersed Let's say we're at a crime scene. We are immersed in it. You are surrounded by um, people. uh, You're surrounded by grief, by trauma, by bodies, whatever it be, and you are right in it. And we are immersed in it. And I always remember David Key, the um, guy from um, the police air wing that was involved in these heroic acts of um, saving people on the uh, the Sydney to Hobart yacht race and what was the oh and Black Saturday it was just incredible and I said to him how can you not because he's I hand on his heart I'm sure he said though they don't affect him like they did me like with me I got my PTSD and I said to him how do you feel when you leave one of those scenes and he said. And I thought how true this was. He said they get dropped into 
a scene, they do what they have to do, they go back back up in the chopper and then they go to the next scene. So they're not uh, immersed in it, sitting around waiting for crime scene, waiting for the coroner, you know, all that, uh, waiting for the, um, just, just all these services. And I thought, you're right, and you're saying a bit the same. It's it's not like you are, as you said, wading through all this evidence and all these people and everything. It it's um, yeah. it makes so much sense. I spend a lot of time thinking about this, Narell. Um, you know, just just human nature and resilience and the difference between people who are defined by what happened to them and people who take what happened to them and use it as a, almost to power yeah. the next step. Yeah. And I, I just see these patterns, like you would have seen patterns in crime. I see patterns in resilience. And I guess over the many years of talking to all of these people, you start to formulate the recipe. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. So, uh, obviously, you're just saying then about Carl Donadio and that really uh, you've never forgotten that. Is there, apart from Carl, is there a crime that you've written about uh, that has affected you more than most others? And if so, why and how? Oh, well, interestingly enough, it was when I wrote my book, Rock Spider. I think that book affected me more than any other. And I've heard you speak, Narelle, about uh, having to watch endless hours of child pornography. And I too had to do that. Like I knew exactly what you were talking about because when I wrote that book, I wrote a chapter on child pornography and I did this in at the squad. So I co-authored it with Chris O'Connor. And I worked in really closely, not when I say worked, I didn't work any jobs, but yeah. I was very um, close with uh, John Ragless and, and these people that were almost legends of this squad that were doing the most amazing work. And uh, so I kind of, they, they would, were telling me the, these stories. And so when I talked about, uh, when I wrote the chapter on child pornography and just how you know, that that was the gateway into offending. And um, and I had to look at it. And But unlike you, when you said that you just had to look at hours and hours, I got to fast forward. And every time I hear you or I hear you talk about that on a podcast, I just thank God for that fast forward button. So while I had to be exposed to it, I had the fast forward. I was not under any obligation in terms of the story to document every moment of it, I could just go, oh, my God, fast forward, fast forward, oh, my God, fast forward, fast forward, and almost kind of, you know, when you watch a horror movie and you've got your hands over your eyes and you go, I've got to see glimpses of it, but I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm going to guard myself. But I think that writing that book uh, as a teacher, I had no idea, and I'd run Chris O'Connor at the squad with the view of writing a short story, and one phone conversation with him I ended up saying, Chris, this needs to be a book. I'm a teacher. I'm a parent. I don't know any of this stuff. We need to know this as a community. And, of course, now we're learning a lot more about the silence around this whole topic protects the offender. And so it's now that we're coming out with, hey, this has happened and this was not my fault and this was, you know, his fault. And we're starting to 
you know, but the silence. And, of course, when I was doing that book, I had the worst night. I don't normally have nightmares, but when I was doing that book, I was really, you know, I was doing it tough at night. I was really having nightmares because of the materials that I was reading and just One detective said to me he had interviewed uh, male victims of a clergy offender and he said to me, he goes, look, I've been a detective for 30 years. He goes, I've seen a lot of damaged victims, but I have never seen the damage that I've seen with these guys. You know, man after man coming in that was completely and utterly traumatised and broken and experiencing dysfunction in every part of their life and in their relationships because they just couldn't get past it. He goes, I've never seen this much damage. And this is why I suppose with my PhD research, I wanted to look at this damage of this, you know, every offender that has one, you know, half an hour of pleasure or with Brock Turner, the, what was it only for 10 minutes of pleasure? Why should it ruin his life? But what they don't realize is that that 10 minutes of you know, dubious pleasure on my, as far as I'm concerned, but it does ruin the woman's life. And if these people, it just becomes something that they often just can't get over. Um, an example of this, and this just happened last week, um, a woman uh, called Gloria got in touch with me and her daughter was uh, Donna Vaines, who Denia, Paul Denia had broken into Donna's flat in about the February's killing started in the June. He'd broken into her flat. He said later it was to kill her. She wasn't home, and he'd slaughtered her uh, cat and two kittens. So Donna had come home from that, and uh, Denya was caught. You know, a couple of months later. Now, uh, you know, Gloria wanted to tell me. She said, "I just wanted you to know that that ruined Donna's life. That she never ever got over the trauma." of she was so scared she never got over and it sounded very much like PTSD she never she couldn't even go to the bathroom on her own her husband or her partner had to go with her and she was so terrified and then of course she you know Gloria described prescription drugs and depression and isolation and she just never got over it and so these one these single acts committed by offenders can ruin someone's life so they don't even have to kill them, but the diminished life that is led by the actions that might only take an hour, uh, it just, you know, that that was something that I really, really uh, wanted to explore. And ironically, it was something that Paul Denyer's sister-in-law, when I said to her, if you could talk to Paul, what would you say? And she just said, I would just shake him and say, Paul, was it worth it? You know, this 10 minutes of your pleasure or your living out your fantasies, was it worth the shattered lives that you've left behind? Was it worth it for you? But I don't know if he'd care, would he? Like I don't imagine somebody like him would care whether he'd shattered lives. It was, I think people like that, all they think about is themselves. I, I think that we try and imagine him through our own lens and our own lens has um has a regular human approach. And I, in one letter that Paul Denyer wrote to me, um, you know, he said, I don't want to talk about these crimes, which still hurt many, including me. And so what I felt from that was that he put himself largely in the same category as the families in that this crime is uh, really hurtful to me. 
And so then he said to me in, in the letter, he said, um, I want to write my own unbiased account of the crime that will be fair to everyone. And I thought, buddy, you don't get it. No. You, <laughs> no. Just no. You, you know, so it's, 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 it's kind of a mute point to, uh, to talk about what he feels because what he's feeling, we don't get because we're on that playing field and he's over there on that other playing field in another country uh, yeah. and, or another planet. And we know. don't care. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's in, just to help with the listeners there, uh, Chris O'Connor and John Raglis, the two names that you mentioned, I worked with them at Sex Crimes. Chris O'Connor was the detective senior sergeant there. Um, you couldn't get a more knowledgeable uh, intelligent man, uh, and John Raglis for that matter, you couldn't get two yeah, better yeah. men to be working in sex crimes than those two. John was, um, I learnt so much from working with the two of them and so many others there, but those two in particular. And I believe um, John Ragless, Rags, we called him. You never call him John. Yeah. Uh, Rags has yeah. been there forever and he's still there. And I know Chris O'Connor has. Is he still there? Yes, he oh, is. my God. Isn't that amazing? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. He That's is. amazing. Yeah, we, we speak. Yeah. So, um, but what part of writing a book do you struggle most with? Um, I don't really struggle with it. Uh, I've been doing this for so long. I I write very economically. Um, I have it down to a fine art. I tell the story. I guess what I struggle the hardest with, I suppose, is like any other writer, is finding a publisher at the end. And i got to say that even when you've written as many books as I have, finding a publisher uh, it isn't necessarily any easier than the first time around. Really? So it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I've published really widely. I don't have one set publisher. So, um, so each time it's kind of, I can't get an agent. I've, every now and again, I have a burst of energy where I send out um, to agents, hey, can you please, uh, and I just never hear back or, so, even though I've sold, I don't even know how many books I've sold, but I'm, I'm thinking it would be at least a quarter of a million books. And I, <gasps> I just, I would really love to just hand that over to an agent and say, hey, can you do all that for me? Because that's the hard bit. I'm really good at the writing bit, but the shipping it and shopping it out and selling it and whatever. Uh, and so it doesn't necessarily get any easier. So maybe that's the hardest part for all writers. Do you think that would be a lot to do with the fact that these days there seems to be so many uh, true crime books or crime books? It's it's almost the market is flooded with them. Would that have anything to do with it? No, because it's not a new thing. Um, so when I, I got a publisher in a day for my first book, I sent the proposal off, the publisher rang me the next day, yep, I'll do it. Same thing happened with my second book about the police stories and then when it came down to Frankston, so he was me with a book about a serial killer and that everyone had read about and that everyone was interested in and no publisher would touch it. And so I happened to bump into John Sylvester 
at um, at a homicide cup eve ball. I don't know whether they still do that, but um, so and and I said to him, I can't get a publisher for Frankston, and he goes, Oh, just do it yourself. Like we do it, like we self publish. And he goes, Meet with Andrew Rule, and he, he'll give you the lowdown. And so I met with Andrew, and, and and Andrew was incredibly helpful and gracious about helping me figure out how to do that. And so um, I had to take out a huge $20,000 loan, which back in 1995 was, um, you know, that was like a third of the cost of my house in Seaford. And um, and I had sort of figured that I had to sell 2,300 books to break even. My first two books had sold 3,000 copies each. So I thought I I was fairly confident that I would make my money, I, I wouldn't have to be paying this debt off forever. And we sold 5,000 copies in the first three weeks. So that book was a runaway bestseller. And the thing was that publish, no publisher would touch it. And my best rejection letter ever was from Penguin on the week that we had made the age top five bestsellers. And I got the rejection letter, dear Vicky, no, we don't do that kind of thing. Best of luck finding someone who will. And I thought, Okay, Penguin, um, that's your loss because this book. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so that was my first bestseller. And so 5,000 in three weeks, it just, we were getting orders in the thousands. And so that went into reprint pretty much straight away. And that book has never been out of print in, in it's nearly 30 years. And so um, they were wrong. So, so it, it happened even before True Crime was popular and it's never really been it's never really gotten any easier. And I'm a guaranteed, you know, if, if my books are marketed properly, I'm a guaranteed uh, solid sales, you know, and I don't know. It's, it's a complete mystery mm. to me, Narelle. Yep. Now, Vicky, what's happened is that today we were going to speak about Sarah McDermott, but we've uh, got onto some very, very interesting subjects. So I was wondering... Would you come back and tell us about um, the insight into the disappearance um, and, you know, almost certain murder of Sarah, of Sarah McDermott? Would you come back and tell us about that? I would love to come back and tell you about uh, about Sarah <laughs> because, I, you know, Sarah has been my uh, living, breathing um, uh, research for almost the last year. So, uh, it's it's been a really interesting ride. I think maybe uh, we could do a bit of a case study on um, Sarah's disappearance, and um, you know what you've unearthed. And uh, if you, well, you're saying you come back, that would be lovely. So I yeah. think we might um, get you to come back next week. What do you reckon? That would be lovely, Narelle. It's like you and me. We could just sit down and just talk forever, couldn't we? We d- we could. Uh, I just love a wine that's all. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Oh, dear. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Vicky, and we'll get on to Sarah McDermott next week. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me, Narelle. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. 
and please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.